1: I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another episode of the Western Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and I'm super excited again today because we are going to be talking field craft survival with the director of field craft survival, director of training and bushcrafter, Kevin Estella. Kevin, how are you doing today? Fantastic Brian. You aren't kidding. That is a pretty short introduction, but I like it. Straight <laughs> to the point. Let's get on it. Yeah, I don't drag them out. I think uh, people are people probably tune in to listen to the guests talk, not myself. And so I just want to cut right to the chase and and let the guests let you share your story, share uh, share your knowledge. Yeah, I respect that. Let's let's get right to it. So, what can I tell you, man? Well, I came across your page and i noticed mm-hmm. that you i mean it really looks like you've built a life around being outdoors. that is that is very much an understatement. i uh there's no
0: doubt about it. i mean for my entire life i've been an outdoorsman growing up in new england and hunting and fishing and camping out there and eventually getting into skiing and scuba and and whitewater kayaking for many years as an instructor. i mean i've really, really enjoyed the great outdoors, everything I can do in them. And through field craft, you know, I lived in Utah for a couple of years and now I'm here in North Carolina running our training division out of our Aberdeen office. And the whole time, you know, even when I was a, a full-time high school history teacher, every chance that I got to have free time, I spent it outdoors. I spent it doing something where I could break away from my regular 730, A.M. to 2:30 P.M. job. So uh, when I got the opportunity to break away from that and I could join Phil and work a very untraditional job where I get to do a lot of cool stuff, I I jumped on it and and here I am today.
1: Yeah, that's a that's an incredible journey. I mean, what a ride to to bounce all around, but always be kind of centered in the outdoors. And do you have a favorite outdoor activity? Is it hunting? I see fishing, just camping cooking outdoor cooking what what's your favorite
0: okay so my favorite is what i'm doing that day and i think we all have been in that scenario before where if you're canoeing on a, on a river and you forget a fishing pole and you see people fishing and having a great time you probably are a little envious that they're fishing and you're not so you just have to take in the experience that day you know or maybe you're on a backpack hunting trip and you know the hunting's not so great, so you break out the fishing pole and you have a fantastic day doing that. So it's really hard for me to say one activity over another. And many times, what I try to do is, if I am backpacking, I'm bringing a fishing pole, or if I am fishing or camping, I'll bring a slingshot. You know, just to mess around with some plinking or a 22 rifle or 22 pistol. So I try to do as much as I can every single time I go out because I'm sure there are listeners who have experienced that where like man I should have packed this or I should have done that. And I think that's really, you know, what I, I will say that I do best right now is I try to blend it all to create these great experiences whenever I venture for away from home.
1: Yeah, I like the way you put that because I think I am, am kind of the same way, but it's not so much I'm as uh, structured as you sound like you are with like I'm intentional about making this day getting the most out of this day. I think I'm more on the opposite. I have, like, the shiny object syndrome where if I'm fishing today, I get so into it, and all of a sudden, like, fishing is life, right? If I have a big Canadian fishing trip like we do every year in the spring, I mean, I forget about everything else. I'm just focused on catching big walleyes, and then as soon as that's done, we start food plotting, and all of a sudden, I'm switching gears and like, my favorite thing about my entire life is now food plotting and then we'll go elk hunting in September. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm on that, you know, all of a sudden the archery elk is, is live or die. Right. And so I think I do it by accident, but I hear what you're saying. Like you just, you go out and make the most of, of what you can. And I've been, I've certainly been there. I've been there and been like, wow, this fishing's not good today. Uh, wish we brought something else (laughs) or the hunting's not good. There's no elk bugling, but there's grouse everywhere. We should have brought a slingshot
0: exactly yeah because grouse as we all know are, are pretty pretty easy to harvest pretty easy to, to take down i mean uh, it's hard to believe natives up in alaska used to snare them the snare pole and they would let you just walk right up to them and put a snare over their neck and cinch it down you know what i mean so um i, I just think it's really cool when you get to combine a few different things but i get it where you're coming from where you're hyper focused i happen to be the total opposite. I am the poster child for undiagnosed uh, outdoors ADHD. And, you know, when I'm doing one thing, I have to jump around, do another thing. You know, my friends call it restless ass syndrome. And they know that if they're going with me, they better drink caffeine because it's just hard to maybe stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, caffeine's pretty good. I had to start bringing some on my outcomes. But, but what? So it sounds like you definitely, dedicated hunter, dedicated outdoorsman, just love nature. But, there's, I think there's a big difference between someone that loves being in the outdoors and someone that pursues, like, bushcraft, right? I mean, um, case in point, I've been an outdoorsman my entire life. I live in the outdoors. We have our own properties. We go on trips, hunting trips in the mountains, fishing trips in Canada. Well, we just bought a farm. I had no idea what any plants are. So I go start walking through the swamp on my farm, wake up the next morning with a rash everywhere comes to find out our farm is loaded with poison sumac. So someone like you that's probably more into bushcraft and field survival, woodsmanship, probably can look walk through the forest, and you're looking like, oh, there's a hemlock tree, and there's a spruce tree, and ooh, that one's poison sumac. I should walk around that. And there I am just breaking branches, bulldozing my way through.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So where did that start? Where did the bushcraft start? Well, uh, you know,
0: I always tell people the earliest teacher I had is my father. And, you know, my father taught me to appreciate wilderness survival because that's what he had to do when he was in the Philippines. And my grandfather had to move many of the townspeople from the Philippines into the jungle when the Japanese Imperial Army invaded in World War II. So my dad lived in a cave from roughly January 1942, until August of 1945, give or take a couple months on both sides, and that's where they lived. And he grew up. So as a kid, I really got into outdoor survival because my dad used to tell me about survival in the Philippines, and it sounded cool. And I'm a I'm an '80s baby, so you know, I grew up watching Rambo and Commando and all these movies where you had these larger-than-life action stars, and Predator, you know, and and it was just so interesting to me to you know, see the survival side. But I didn't really get into the bushcraft side, which is the bigger picture because, you know, there is a difference between survival and bushcraft survival. There's always an urgency where it's like life or death. And bushcraft is, as you implied, living off the land. It is, you know, knowing the difference between, you know, what plants are out there, what trees are out there, what can do, what for you, what you can resource. So I didn't really get into that until I was in my early, early teens. You know, and I started reading the books of like Ray Mears and, um, you know, I started reading uh, Richard Graves' bushcraft book and then eventually Morris Kachansky's book. So, you know, I got into studying bushcraft, you know, in my early teens and in my 20s for certain. Um, and then I studied it, obviously, at the main primitive school, school Jackman Bushcraft, and then where I was uh, the lead survival instructor for many years at the Wilderness Learning Center in upstate New York
1: okay so okay so you've been you've been in it I mean you're not like a self-titled bushcrafter I mean you I didn't even know that you could go get formal training in it other than obviously the like a go to a company and take a, a three day course but you're saying there's like well university like uh, like classwork yeah so so I'll put it this way there's no governing body universal governing
0: body that recognizes anyone with the title you know, bushcrafter, crafter, uh, survival instructor. I mean, there are governing bodies that regulate the title guide and there are governing bodies that regulate the title naturalist. Now I am not a guide. I am not a naturalist, but I am a survival instructor. I'm someone who teaches bushcraft and survival, you know, because when students are in my classes, yes, they'll learn how to make an emergency fire. But, you know, this past weekend I was out in Utah and I was teaching primitive uh, survival skills. So I was showing how to make uh, cordage out of longleaf willow. And I was showing students how to, um, you know, utilize uh, natural, you know, plants out there to to create fiber friction. So I'll, I'll say that, but there isn't a governing body that, that regulates the bushcraft or survival instructor title. But, you know, when you do it for long enough, I mean, you are what you do. And people recognize me for that. And you know, I've written a book and I've written close to 200 printed magazine articles. So people know that I'm legit. Um, not to mention I'm not afraid to, to demonstrate in front of people at a, at a moment's notice, like, Hey, let's go do this. Okay. You know, so I'll say that, uh, you can take formal courses and there are some great programs out there. Uh, right now, Tim Smith's program at Jack Mountain Bushcraft is probably the most intensive in the nation for semester long training. Um, you know, but there are courses out there. And, you know, if you are out there doing more with less and if you're utilizing the environment, and being resourceful, with limited resources, guess what? You're a bushcrafter, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, I'm okay saying that so-and-so is a bushcrafter, you know, and I always tell people as far as competition that they say like, Oh, well, aren't you afraid of calling that person a bushcrafter too? I'm like, absolutely not. You know, my competition are the people that don't want us to be outside or want to take away our rifles. So we can't do this or that, you know, my competition isn't the person that wants to do what I'm doing. Uh, it's the person that tells me that I can't do what I love to do.
1: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a really good way to put it. And so, how much of bushcraftery? I don't know if that's the word. Bushcrafting. How much I think you the, just made
0: it up. I think we're, I think we're good at that.
1: Bushcraftery. Uh, how much of the? How much of bushcraft is is regional? Like you said, you're in North Carolina right now. So how much of of what you do is specific to North Carolina and how much of it's almost like universal, put me in any landscape and these skills that I have will translate versus maybe for an easy example, like North Carolina's probably got different life, plant life, animal life than Utah.
0: Well. When I grew up, I grew up in New England, and where I did a lot of my training was upstate New York at the Wilderness Learning Center, Maine. You know, I was on a very different latitude than where I am now. And you'll find that plant, plants and, and trees that you're going to find in any given environment, they tend to follow bands of latitude. So I'm very comfortable Seattle, Michigan, New York, um, you know, Maine, Iceland. Uh, England, you know, uh, Sweden, I mean, you name it, like I've, I've been to all those places and I've gotten by just fine with understanding what plants are up there, understanding how to harvest them and, and do what I need to do with them. It was a great shock when I moved out to Utah because everything out in Utah is sagebrush, right? Sagebrush, juniper, but here's where it gets interesting. From my move from New England to Utah to North Carolina, there are certain universals And in the survival community, in the bushcraft community, you always hear about the rule of threes. And people say, like, okay, on average, you can live about three minutes without oxygenated blood going through your body. Three hours exposed to elements without good shelter. Three days without water and three weeks without food, blah, 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 blah. Everyone knows those rules of three. But there are other universal concepts that are rules of three. So when it comes to fire making, you need heat, air, and fuel. That's a rule of three. When it comes to cordage making, you need length, strength, and flexibility. When it comes to making shelter, you need something to sleep inside, open and under. So there are so many additional rules of three that if you understand the concepts, they are universal in life. And whereas in upstate New York, I might be using birch bark to create a natural shelter, um, a water-resistant you know, roofing system for my shelter in upstate New York, I'm not using that down here in the Carolinas where there's a lot of pine. You know, there's all sorts of lolly pine, and there's all sorts of Um, you know, other plants that you're not going to find out in Utah. And in Utah, I might be doing something totally different because I need to really focus on shade and I got to be careful because there's a 40 degree temperature slowing with the, the high desert. So bushcraft is definitely, definitely something that can be very specialized to a given area. Like my home will always be the Northern woods. I know that area better than anywhere else, but I enjoy training in other environments, jungle, I enjoy training in uh, Northwest rainforest. I enjoy training in the desert. I love learning. And that's something that differentiates a lot of bushcrafters from, say, the survivalists. Survivalists want to do, like, the, you know, let's go and see if we can defeat Mother Nature. Well, Mother Nature has a winning record. <laughs> and bushcrafters recognize that, right? And it's more like, how do you live with nature as opposed to against it? You tend to live a lot better when you keep Mother Nature happy. She's like the. You know, not to stereotype, you know, the nagging wives out there, but she's like the wife you don't want to get angry um, because she gets angry, she'll swallow you alive and she'll kill you. So it's learning how to deal with nature uh, and live with it as opposed to, you know, fighting against
1: it. Yeah, that makes sense. So would you say the ideal contestant for like a lone, Um, or any of these shows where you get dropped off, I mean, it's reality TV, some are better than others, but for the concept of you get dropped off and you're trying to last longer than anyone else, would you classify that ideally as a survivalist or would that candidate do better if they were a bushcrafter?
0: I'll say that anyone is going to do really well on that show if they're fat. (laughs) Um, And I'm totally fine saying that because... I've spoken to many contestants on a lot. I've I've podcasted them myself. I'm friends with many of them. And there's an unwritten guidebook for how to win that show. And it's very, very simple. It's how do you control starvation the best? And there are many aspects of that show that don't get televised. And I have no existing NDAs with the Discovery Channel, so I can say these things. They have to use barbless hooks. And there are hunting and fishing regulations where – there might be a caribou right in front of you, but that caribou might be out of season. But you have a beautiful bow and you've got the skill set. You can't take it. So the network tends to stack things against the favor of the contestants because if it was too easy, it would be drama. Um, I was just speaking to someone uh, from a different TV show, and this person was actually gaining weight on the show. So they said, you can't have this, this, and this. And then that person got sick. And the network, they don't have your health in their best interest. If that were the case, they would tell you, "Don't go on the show." So it really doesn't matter if you are someone who believes in just strictly survival. You know, if you come from like a modern survival background or military background, or if you are a, you know, uh, you know patchouli smelling you know, ganja smoking hippie, bush hippie, it doesn't matter if you're a bushcrafter, the hippie, or the military guy, if you go in there heavier than everyone else, and you have an understanding of how to get food, and you can build a shelter that retains heat, you're going to go pretty darn far. Um, But then there's every so often an exception to that rule, like Jordan Jonas went in at about 165 pounds, because he couldn't pack on weight, and he left at about 165 pounds. So I think the The best bet is to go in fat if that's your goal to win. Um, But if your goal is to live a very long life with a good, healthy system, I'd say avoid that show because half a million dollars is not worth it to walk away with something that you'll have for the rest of your life that impairs your ability to go out and do things in the great outdoors.
1: Yeah. I've always thought that a half a million, I mean, and that's if you win. Like I'm a smart guy. But I, I'm not an expert bushcrafter, and so I'm smart enough to realize I ain't gonna win. I'm just gonna be lonely and cold and miserable for about 20 days, and then I'm gonna tap out, or you know, 40 days, whatever it is. I'm probably not gonna be the guy that wins, and I don't know if I want to be alone long enough for to win. You know, like I'm an extrovert, and there's not a lot of people interaction on that show. And and here's something that I do like about the show is that it really demonstrates the
0: importance. recognizing that human beings are social creatures. And I had an experience in 2016, I did a three week long float trip, uh, float dragging trip in Alaska with my buddy Mark Knapp. And while I was on that trip, we were off off grid for the most part with the exception of the Garmin InReach. And I had a dream that my father died. And it was the most vivid, scariest dream I've ever had in my entire life. And I told Mark, I was like, Mark, I need a huge favor. I need you to contact your wife she needs to contact my sister make sure my dad's okay cuz i just have a terrible feeling and he did and everything ended up being okay but it's interesting when your mind isn't constantly bombarded with instagram notifications and email notifications and text message beeps and and phone rings and all that great stuff your mind is left to go to places where it hasn't been in a long time and not only did i have That dream about my dad passing away, which, thank God, was not the case. But I had memories come back to me from high school that I forgot about for 30 years. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm sorry, for 20 years. And it was really, really interesting for my mind to go back to those places. And I can only attribute that to being in that semi-alone state where I didn't have distractions from the outside world. And I kind of got into like the natural rhythm of the great outdoors,
1: yeah, I hear what you. I hear what you're saying. So, you know, I did a I did an elk hunt once, and just the way it worked out, I was the only one that had points, and it was kind of a use it or lose it scenario, um, because it was like ten years before I could get a better unit, and so it's like I might as well use these points. And so I go on this hunt alone, and I'm thinking, you know, I've done some weekend trips alone, and I'm not I'm not camping, like I'm not I'm not uh, backpack hunting, right? This is base camping. I've done some base camp weekends, and, yeah, it's boring, right? Sometimes when there's no action, it gets boring, but I've done it. I'll be fine. Well, I got up into the high country of Colorado, and the out of all the aspects of the hunt, the mental part was the by far the hardest. Like, it started to really suck being alone, not talking to anyone, your thoughts. It's almost like like you said, when you're not – When your mind isn't getting distracted, it'll start creating its own distractions, right? In the form of thoughts, um, imagination, in your case, dreams, and it's, those aren't always good. (laughs) They don't always paint the best picture.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. And yeah, at the same time, like in the short term, it's, it's like the outdoors is almost like a drug. Where a little, little bit of medicine goes a long way. A lot of medicine can be dangerous. You know, a little bit of aspirin can relieve some pain. A lot of bit of, a lot of aspirin will go, will send you to the hospital. Um, you know, the great outdoors, if you can unplug for 72 hours and just go, then you know what? That type of reset is good for you. But if you go too long, it drives you crazy. It makes you wonder, what are people doing in the world? Like, I want to connect. Like, there's no such thing as a tribe of one. There's no such thing as a civilization of one. And we are very, very social creatures. So you got to get out and you got to get back at some point. Um, But if you're driven, then you can go a couple days or three days or maybe four or five even and just get away as long as you understand what could happen to you along the way. And it's always nice to be able to pull the plug at any time and say, you know what, I originally planned to go out for five days. I'm going back at 4. You know, like that is the ultimate freedom. You you schedule 5 days, but you go as long as you want or as little as you want. You're good to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it makes me wonder what is with these people that that you know, I forget the guy's name, but he picked the guy that he's famous for going up to Alaska and living by himself and he pretty much video logged the entire process, built his own cabin, but he lived by himself yeah, for was that like forty years?
0: So he he did that in his middle age years. That was Dick Prennke. Uh His documentary was Alone in the Wilderness, and yeah, he was up there for forty something years. Um, I mean, he made one of the most elaborate log cabins with fully functional wooden hinges. And in his documentary, he's uh, you know he's feeding birds out of the palm of his hand, and he had moose that would come to visit him. Like that guy pretty much i mean he was living in a different era as well i mean he didn't have all of the luxuries that we have in the palm of our hand you know like when we say oh i i need to grab my phone you're not really grabbing a phone you're grabbing a supercomputer that has more capability than the lander that landed on mars on that landed on the moon (laughs) i don't think we've landed on mars yet unless the government's not telling us something but uh you know, it's it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Like, that guy lived in an era where, you know, he was doing things before high-tech fabrics. The high-tech fabric at that time was wool. You know, maybe it was merino wool. And he was doing everything with traditional tools. Again, that guy I would consider more of the bushcrafter, naturalist, than I would hunter, fisherman, or whatever. But, I mean, talk about a super resilient individual, great mindset, skill set, and – amazing willingness that he demonstrated by building that cabin.
1: Yeah, I I agree. Phenomenal talent. I'm just wondering what's going on in his mind to be able to be up there alone for 40 years. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? You because know, if I can... go alone for four days, I'm starting to think, all right, I want to get back. And I get it. I get it's a different era. I would almost, I wonder if it was, you know, different, like they didn't have Instagram and Facebook and supercomputers to connect with 400 people or 4,000 people. But I feel like back then, the 40 people in your community or in your life were that much more important, right? You connected with them way more often, every night at dinner, every day out at the farm, you went to church, all the, or whatever, all these, but you, they had 40 people that you were ultra connected to versus now, you know, I'm loosely connected to like a 1,000 Right, but it's like still a total level of like social aspect of my life. Maybe I don't know. It just it seems like there's got to be some wires twisted to be able to to do it for forty years. Yeah, you know,
0: I've heard people say that most people can only maintain um, between like one to fifteen friends. Right, like you can have like true friends, one to fifteen. And when you start trying to add another person into your friend's group, something's got to give, right? Someone's got to go. So, you know, there are people out there that can exist with just one person in their life. And there are people out there that need the comfort of saying, these are my seven best friends. I mean, like picture any of the pictures of any, of any of the girls that you know that post up every fall drinking cappuccinos wearing Uggs and a denim shirt and, and tight pants. And there's probably seven to 15 of them in a group, but there's not like a group of 50 of them. You know what I mean? Like right. close friends groups are, are meant to be small. And, you know, I just wonder like what could draw someone to, to become like almost like a hermit like that. You know, what if, I don't know, Panicke's backstory. I don't recall it. If he lost someone or, you know, if this was just a seasonal thing, but, I mean, I could imagine a a time where someone says, you know, I'm done talking to the world. I want to be reclusive and and live this way. Because, I mean, it already happens with the homeless population. But then again, you look at the homeless population and even the homeless tend to congregate and work with one another. And, you know, they tend to be social. So it really takes a set of cojones to to go out to the Alaskan wilderness and do it all by yourself. Um, I think that's really, really powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, an incredible story to be able to do it and to video it all at a day where, like, that wasn't commonly thought of. Like, nowadays, it's, oh, i got to capture this. i got to get content. But back then, it was remarkable. And, yeah, I agree because <laughs> so many people I hear be like, oh, I'm so ready to just give it all up and move to Alaska. Or, ah, man, if, like, everything ever happened to my wife and kids, I'd be in Alaska living by myself, and I'm like, yeah probably not you'd probably go and you'd probably make it like three weeks yeah, I agree I agree you know and it, it, I hear that a lot with the hunting side of the community because this is a, I mean this is a hunting podcast but I'll hear a lot of people will ask me about questions they'll get they'll have questions like hey I'm doing an elk hunt I got a couple questions and I'm like great I love it what do you what are you thinking where are you going what state and they'll be like I'm gonna do a 14-day backcountry Colorado hunt I'm like wow you know you got a group or you know how'd you land on that and they're like no 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 I'm just going by myself and it's like I don't have the heart to burst their bubble but I know that they're not going on a 14-day backpack hunt because it's hard like it's freaking hard and for a first hunt you know you're gonna probably more dangerous than hard but I hear it time and time again and I just like well, come up with a backup plan. I've been there. I've done that. It 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 can be pretty mentally tough. Don't feel like you can't go to town, get a hotel, go out to dinner, go to Subway, you know, talk to the person behind the counter for a minute, you know, and the, and it seems like the optimism never ceases to fail or they're just like, "No, I'll be fine." But I hear that a lot. Is that common with new people to the bushcraft or to the naturalist community where they like this, just abundance of optimism and like overconfidence when you first get into it, like, Oh, it looks so fun. I can do this for two weeks.
0: Oh, there, there's no doubt about it, that people, uh, overestimate their capability. And, and I, I understand, you know, in our minds, we are the superhero that, you know, we, We all picture like in the movies, and we all picture to be the type of person that we'd want to come save ourselves. But the the reality is is that we often take ourselves out of the mindset that we need to be in. You know, when people go on vacation, they say to themselves, "I can't be bothered with this. I'm on vacation." Well, just because you're on vacation doesn't mean that you let down your guard. Just because you're traveling doesn't mean that you say, "Well." I don't have to worry about things at home or I don't have to worry about the normal worries that I have at home. Like there's no doubt about it. You, you have to uh, always, always, you know, be aware when you're traveling about and especially when you go into the great outdoors. So I've seen this on, on courses, timeless, timeless times, like multiple times where someone shows up and they're like, well, I can make a fire. I'm like, okay, I can make a fire as well but my job is to see your threshold for fire making. So we'll start off and it's like, okay, can you do a ferro rod fire? Absolutely. Well, great. That's the easiest way to make a fire in the great outdoors. Use a ferro rod and pre-made tinder. And then, okay, let's use some storm matches. Let's use a big lighter. Now let's go back in history and let's use one match and we'll do a one stick, one match fire. And then we'll do flint and steel. And then we'll go back to do primitive fire. And oh, when you think primitive fire is over, let's do primitive fire with natural cordage that you need to process off the land. You need to do everything now with just stone tools. And, you know, that's the pinnacle of fire making is if you can say, I'm going to go into the woods with nothing and come out with a fire. Um, And that's something that I still struggle with because I'm not the greatest napper. I can make a sharp edge and I can exploit cracks in in dried wood to, you know, get my bow drill fire going and I can make natural cordage like a bandit. But there are people out there that will say, I can do all that. and It's like, okay, let's test you. That's my job. And then they get to a point, and what often happens is that someone will say, you know what, uh, well, I'm just going to use the big lighter, or I'm just going to do this. And it's like, hold on, hold on. There's something to, you can learn about your, your fail points, and then I can coach you, and you'll get past them. But there are people out there that will say, A, this will never happen to me. Or B, I will always carry this, so I never need to know how to do X, Y, Z. And there are times when you can't always carry things. And there's no way of knowing if it won't happen to you. So it's a good thing to learn from people who are willing to train you. But there are many people that don't want to be trained because they would rather live comfortably living in this idea that it's never good to happen to me. You know, they'd rather be comfortably numb than be educated. Um and, and that's true of so many different, so many different uh, pastimes in the great outdoors. People that think they know everything about fishing, and then they end up throwing their lure in a tree. People that end up going kayaking or canoeing, think they can run a rapid, and the next you know they end up swimming. People that go up into the mountains and they get, you know, turned around and they end up sideways on a trail, and the next you know they're they're wedged up and they can't get down. I mean, we see it every single year. If people just step back and they had a bit of humble pie and said, "You know what? I don't know everything." And guess what? It's okay to not know everything. You know, then I think we'd be in a better place as outdoorsmen collectively. But it, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think people are are way too proud, and they don't want to admit that uh, that they've got some weaknesses.
1: Yeah, I think there's some inherently conflicting characteristics at play here about the people that like doing what we like to do and, and I'm nowhere near what you do, but just put yourself in a situation outside of the couch, right? I like to chase bulls in September on a mountain. Well, by nature, mm-hmm. that makes me probably headstrong, um, a little bit arrogant, maybe a little bit cocky, a little bit overconfident. It makes me, um, you know, that kind of person to want to go out and do that. And then that's just, you know, diabolically opposed to me being humble at you know at times so it's like it's two conflicting characteristics of the person that wants to go do it's probably the least likely person to admit they don't know what they're doing <laughs> but here's but here's how how
0: it's different and and this is something that maybe is a great takeaway for you and for the listeners tonight that we can wear many hats in our lives and one of the hats that i tend to wear is i am super competitive uh, i try to to do things to the point where, you know, I want to be number one in the class. Like I just went to a shooting class at Glock and, you know, I'm listening to the guys introduce themselves and there are some amazing shooters. There SWAT team guys from all over. And I was like, yep, guys, I'm just a big training junkie. But deep down in my head, I was like, I want to win the top shot. I want to have the fastest time. And I did. Um, but I also know that I need to take off that hat when I leave that training environment. And I need to, go from thinking I'm the best to hopefully become the best in the cross by shooting that well to being that person again, who's willing to receive criticism, who's willing to, to train those fail points. So you can wear the hat of super aggressive, super cocky, go getter when you go out on the trails, but at some point you need to be able to turn that off when you recognize a time that you need to turn it off. Like if you get lost or if you get turned around, You don't say to yourself, well, I'm I'm going to keep going. I'm It's like, hold on. I need to recognize that as much as I love doing what I'm doing and as, as much as I want to get out there, I need 30 seconds to kind of run through something in my head. And if you're able to kind of flip that switch, you know, in the tactical community that I kind of hover in and I just witness a lot, it's called turn the corner, right? How do you turn that corner? when you recognize that something's wrong and then adjust course. A lot of people can't do that, but it's really, really awesome when you meet someone who is capable of doing that. And I've seen a lot of students over the years that can do this where it's like, all right, it's go time. And they put on that competitive streak where they put on that, that you know, I'm half Polish. So I would say that Polish stubbornness. So they put on that Polish stubbornness and next thing you know, they just go and go and go. And it's like, okay, time out. Let's go back to this. And then they turn it off. So that's a, an, an amazing capability that hopefully you and your listeners can, can pick up where it's like, don't be afraid to, to be the go-getter, right? Like if you want to, to get the big bowl, then you got to be aggressive. You got to go after it. It's not going to come to you, but at the same time learn to turn that off and recognize that you need to turn it off if something else arises.
1: Yeah. Good. It's a really good um, way to think about life because it's so hard to get better at something when you don't think there's a problem. Correct. Right, and then so it's like I, you know, I don't know what the what happened, but it it had to have been the elk, not me, right? Well, you're okay. never going to get a better at elk hunting if that's the if that's the you know after action review every time is wow that elk just didn't want to play. Right. Well, if you're like, man, what did I do to mess that up? Like, what could I have done better? And so I'm kind of maybe. Maybe I do have two hats. I just don't switch back and forth between the two very easily. So once I'm one in one one I kind of feel stuck in that one. And then once I'm in the other, maybe I feel stuck in that one. But it is, like you said, it's an important skill to have um, if you want to get better. I suppose not everyone probably cares about getting better, but I do. So
0: <laughs> yeah. And how many people have you met who have said, well, this is always worth me. you know, I mean, gosh. I hear that expression all the time. It's complacency. You know, it's like, well, this is the way we've been hunting this way for 20-something years. We always hunt this way. It's like, okay, it works until it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and what if there is someone out there that's willing to go further? What if there is someone out there that's willing to, to you know, attempt a, a new method of hunting? Like, a good friend of mine is Aaron Snyder. You know, Aaron Snyder is coming out from North Carolina in November. He's going to do a three-day intensive hunting training course, and Aaron is the guy who has stalked up the deer to the point where when he's at full draw, the broadhead is between the deer's uh, antlers, you know, and he does it by changing out his boots to a pair of neoprene booties where he can actually feel the ground underneath him as he's stalking. Well, there are people out there that would say, you don't need to do that. We've been hunting in boots for the longest time. And you know, who carries two pairs of socks or two pairs of boots footwear? Well, the guy that is capable of doing that that you can't do, you know what I mean? Like, like there are folks out there who will fall on tradition and say, well, this is the best thing because the only thing we've been using for 50 years. And they're so unwilling to look at the new person who's got maybe a great way of doing something that might be better than theirs. Um, so it's important. Like it's like, I get it. Tradition makes sense. I love tradition. I'm a, I'm a former history teacher. I teach, History tradition, but I'm also very willing to recognize when someone comes in the room and shows me a new way of doing something, I'm like, Ooh, how can I blend that to what I already know? And if you can create that hybrid, right, where you know, maybe you're maybe you're dyed in the wool, like I love wooden rifle stocks. I love wooden rifle stocks, and then you find some guy who says, Well, I've got a wooden rifle stock that's wooden and there's inlays of carbon fiber here and there, like maybe you can still have your wooden stock but maybe it's a little bit of a blend of some new technology that actually makes you better. And if you can make yourself better by 10%, then why aren't you? You know, like well, there are a, people yeah. out
1: there that just refuse to do that. A 10% yeah. improvement, that's that's huge. I mean, I'm looking for the 1%. Like what can I get 1% better on something? Um, and that's oh, that's yeah. kind of how I approach life. But, um, but I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit because we've talked a lot about – maybe general aspects of being a bushcrafter and also just a learner, right? A lifelong learner. Yeah. But you wrote a book, and what the title, 101 Skills You Need to Survive in the Woods, right? That's correct, yes. Yes. And so I wanted to ask you, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on, like, what are some of your favorite outdoor skills that you use hunting? It kind of bringing it pretty pretty close to the hunting um so maybe not so much on how do you source natural fish bait right Mm -hmm. but what do you what do you find yourself using out of your knowledge toolbox the most when it comes to be chasing game hunting whether it's bow or rifle either one
0: land navigation comes to mind right
1: off the bat okay
0: so Something that I, I tell my students, something I tell all the people that I come and train with us at Fieldcraft, I say, when does hunting season end? And I'll have people, you know, pull out their phone and say, oh, November 15th or whatever it may be. And then I say to them, I'm like, you think the season ends? <laughs> and what, what they, they look at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, you don't do any scouting in the off season. You don't do any, you know, traveling to that environment and just glassing. And they're like, well, oh, yeah, I do that. I'm like, you don't think you're hunting? Just, you're not taking, you're not killing, but you're hunting. And they're like, that's a good point. Guess what? Hunting season never ends. Like they, I've had people like come to that conclusion that you know, hunting season never ends. And something that they've used and I use is land navigation. So when I teach land nav, it's a very intensive class, you know, and I can teach it. Uh, you know, a lot of map work in eight hours, so I can get people creating route cards and doing amazing terrain association and whatnot. Day two, it's a lot of practical in the field, but once you understand how to read a map, you can see the topography that's outlined on the map almost in 3d form. And you can get an idea of, all right, if I were an animal, here's my water source. And if I pair that, uh, Topographical map and understanding of terrain and understanding where these water sources are, then I can also look on that map and see what would be the easiest line of drift. And a line of drift being the place where a person or an animal is drawn to when it comes to like walking through a given area. So walk through a valley instead of over the hills, that type of deal. So when you start looking at a map. But from the hunter perspective, as opposed to the backpacker perspective or the camper or the search and rescue guy, and you start looking at the the map, you can say to yourself, well, where are these animals fed down? Where would they be able to uh, easily escape if they encountered a natural predator, that type of thing? But then you start using all of the technology that's available to you, like Google Earth and 3D satellite imagery, and you can actually look in and see, like, okay, green on the map represents vegetation but what kind of vegetation and on google earth you can see all right that is a field with uh some spruce trees here and there but that is a very very thick wood line so i use a land navigation like you wouldn't believe when it comes to uh you know hunting in the great outdoors it's just I like knowing where I am. I like knowing where all the terrain is. If I'm in New England, I need to know where property lines are. So I'm always using online programs like Onyx Hunt. uh, And I use Gaia for straight line distances. So I'm using land navigation hunting more than anything else. And then after that, you know, the knife skills. Instead of carving wood as a bushcrafter, I'm dressing out an animal. I'm using multiple knife grips when I'm, you know, cleaning out the, uh, you know, cleaning out the, the carcass, you know, going and taking out the rib meat and, you know, taking out all the little bits that that I can get, um, before I drag the, before I drag the skeleton or, or leave the skeleton, you know, in a place where, you know, nature will take care of it. So, I mean, I think between the compass and the knife skills, those are the two that, that I'm using the most and the only thing I'll say that's different is when I'm bushcrafting, when I'm doing survival stuff, I'm using a survival knife or a bushcraft knife, something that's more of like a, like a Pucco design or a a very, you know, guardless design. And when I'm hunting, I'm using a different knife. I'm using more of like a, like I I love my Victorinox, uh, cheapo filet knife. You know, it's a stiff boning knife. I've used that on how many animals to, to process, you know, all the game from it. But, um, I'm using different knives, different tools when i when I do those different tasks, but the grips are the same, and like I said, the understanding of the map and and how to utilize it that's all the same
1: okay yeah that's pretty t- I like how you kind of elevated land nav beyond you know the the immediate th- portion of it where it's how am I going to get where I want to go? Right. Cause a lot of people think of net land nav in that term of how do I want to get to where I want to go? And you look at a map and, and I'll tell you the easy way to get good at it is to not know what you're doing for about two or three days of elk hunting. And you realize real fast, like there's easier ways to run around these mountains than going straight up and straight down. And Correct. And so you get good at it by default, but then elevating it to that next level of, okay, how would the animals be using this mountain? And now I know where I'm not only how to get where I want to go, but why am I going to this spot? Yeah. And think about it this way,
0: right? Like we teach, it's important to always have an emergency asthma, an emergency bearing. So if you're hunting in an area where let's say that there's for whatever reason, there's, there's a high fire that da- uh, danger. Well, what bearing are you going to follow on your compass to get out of there where you get away from the, know the fuel source Um, what way would you go if you had to get to water what way would you go if you had to get to the nearest road so we always teach what's referred to as map reconnaissance where before you go into a given area you understand where these emergency azimuths are to these different destinations well the same way that we have that concept of emergency azimuth, so do animals Uh, animals know where they're going they they walk over their tracks the same way over and over and over And you can almost be guaranteed that if an animal is, you know, in a place where it's really vulnerable, it's got a way out. I mean, they pay attention to the ways in and the ways out. So there's no doubt that you can elevate your navigation to beyond what most people know it as, which is how do I get in? How do I get out? Uh, How do I set my compass? How do I take a bearing? Like you can use navigation in so many cool ways when it comes to, to hunting. Uh, and there are some good practice habits, like get off your GPS. You know what I mean? Like save your GPS for emergencies only. And there's a difference between navigation and navigating. Navigation is using all your tools. Navigation is when, I'm sorry, navigating is when you uh, are actually out there and you're like, okay, I see the road that goes up the mountain, but it's a long way around that road or You know, I can hand rail that, that river if I want to, but to get to that point over there, I'm just going to cut through the field. And if you can do that, guess what? You're navigating. Um, it's different than navigation. Navigation is very formal. Navigating is out in the field, getting your, your boots wet and your your hands dirty as you, you make your way around.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I get it because I'll be honest. We use a lot of Onyx. Um, that is, you know, we're, we're doing navigation, right? We're not navigating until we start hunting. And then you're like, oh, man, this is looking good over here. But that's like small-scale, small-scope or small-scale navigating. Um, But we don't, just the style of hunting that, you know, our group does, especially out west, isn't, like, true backcountry. We do in base camps with day hunts mostly. And we've always been loosely prepared to do, like, a night out, which is, you know, still not, not that extreme to just have a tent and and basically you're just saving yourself two walks a walk out and then a walk right back in the morning. Um, but we're not doing this extreme stuff, and so that's a, those are a bunch of skills that I would really need to get get um, polished up if I was gonna say, okay, I'm doing, I'm leaving the truck and I'll be back in three or five days, depending on how the hunt goes.
0: Yeah. In the type of hunting that you're mentioning is, is so common, right? I mean, a lot of people do that type of thing where you have a camp and it's like a spike camp and you strike out from every single day going for whatever you need to. That's, that's super common. Um, you know, there's something to be said about when you get out into a given area, understand what your left, right limits are, as well as, you know, what your backstops are. So if you know, a given hunting area, and someone tells you, Hey, uh, you can hunt in my property right like let's, let's say that you do get access to private land someone says you can hunt in my property uh but you've got to stay to the west side of the river well guess what that creates a backstop you know not to cross that river they tell you i own that property up to that ridge line there's maybe your left limit or maybe you know just from looking at the map that is of the area that you're going to like okay here's a 1000 by 1000 meter grid here's another and here's another, okay, there's a mountain ridge up here. So you write a note and you tell yourself, okay, when I land on the ground, there's going to be a very distinct saddle up in that ridge line that that's going to indicate, say, you know, my Northwest direction from where I'm parked. Like you can have all the safety gear in place and you can put away your, your kit as long as you do that prep ahead of time. And there's no, nothing stopping hunters from visualizing what they need to do before they get in the field like you can experience a hunt before you go on that hunt you know like i'm headed out to colorado next week i'm going on a backpack fishing trip and i'm already experiencing in my head what i'm going to do like i'm going to land i'm going to stow my bag that kind of houses my my you know internal frame backpack when it goes through the airport i'm going to stow that in my buddy's vehicle i'm going to stow my pelican case for my pistol and I'm going to load it up. And I, I run myself through the scenario of like, all right, so now I get to camp. What am I going to need? Hmm, I usually like hiking in with heavier boots, but I like camp shoes. So I throw my camp shoes in my, my back. If you run through scenarios, if you visualize, which is such an important skill set, it'll help you prevent yourself from making those stupid mistakes, like getting lost, like forgetting simple things that you might need when it comes to like processing an animal. Uh, you know, let's let's face it. Some people go hunting and they forget the the necessary permits. They leave it behind on the table or whatever. You know what I mean? Like if you, before you step out the door, if you can say to yourself, all right, let me run through my hunt, just visually run through it. You'll have all the prep you need for when you get out in the field.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of visualization. I'm a very imaginative person, but I also have a lot of systems and I, I almost live and die by, by the system. Right. And so for example, my system is when I buy a tag or when I get a tag or when that season opens, that tag goes in a Ziploc bag and it goes in my vinyl harness. Um, I have a, I have a vinyl harness. that has got like a zippered pocket on the backside. It's like up against my chest. And so I know every tag is in there. I mean, I might be bringing a whitetail tag out to Colorado, but it's, because I know it's going to be in there. I don't really need to pinch ounces or, you know, grams at this point. And I never hunt without my bino harness. I'm just that I'm just that person. No matter what I'm doing, I always have my bino harness on. And so that's kind of just a system that over time I've developed because I've done the same thing. I've gotten out west and I'm like, "Oh, shoot, I forgot my tags. Now I got to go find a regional game office, hope they're open, go get a reprint, you know." And so I've I kind of visualize this but then figure out there's certain things where it just works so much better if you have a process. Like you, you, it's just habit. Like this is how I do it. This is what works for me. And this is the process I use. Yeah, I agree. Uh, those
0: SOPs are so important, but you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the moment or to get distracted. And you know, our eyes play, play tricks on us. So even having a process of, all right, I'm going to double check everything. You know, I've had some people say, well, did you check it to make sure it's there? Yes. Then forget about it. But I've also had people say, "Well, go into my pack and grab that for me, and you know, bring that over here." Then when I grab it, something falls out. You know, like I've seen that happen, where it's like, "Damn it, that must have fallen out when I reach in my bag." You know, at the trailhead and it was dark. It's like it's okay to double check things. It's okay to buddy check things. Like, but some people don't want to do that. They're headstrong, you know. And I get it. I'm headstrong too at times. Um, but when it comes to an important activity, like a hunt of a lifetime, which every hunt is a hunt of a lifetime, then you can't make simple mistakes. You know, like when you're doing something big, don't screw up with something simple.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Usually when I do big hunts, so like an elk hunt, um, I have lists that I've relied on for years and I will like two weeks ahead of time, I start looking at my list and I start visualizing What's different about this hunt? What do I need? What don't I need? And I start making this list, and it's way early, right? So I'm not cramming. I'm not in a rush. And then I start organizing my gear, and I'll pick the least used room in the house, and I lay out every piece of gear. And if it goes inside of a kit or, like, a little bag, a stuff sack, then I'll, I'll check out each item as I put it into the stuff sack, and then I check off, like, that stuff sack. And I just methodically work my way through this list. And the key is doing it way early. Cause if you do this the night before you leave, you'll forget a lot of stuff. Yeah, man, I'm all, I'm
0: a huge fan of using Google docs. Like my friends laugh at me for how organized I am in some ways, like other ways I'm a total mess. But in, in when it comes to my, my gear, like I have Google docs with like, all right, this is my travel double benefit. When I do like a travel uh, trip, and I'm camping. Like, I can grab that bag and it's got everything I need and I can go on that Google Google Doc and it tells me the inventory of it. And the box that I use when I teach bushcraft, it has an inventory of everything that's in that box. And, you know, when I look at all my other stuff there's an inventory. Like, I know exactly how many pistol mags I have for each of my blocks. I know how many rifle mags I have. Like, I have an inventory. And when people say, like, why do you have that? I'm like, because I have downtime. You know, and I, I can't always be out in the field. So when it's you know, ridiculously raining here or late at night, or if I have a couple of days off and I just want to sort my gear, I'm going to do that because you take care of your gear, your gear takes care of you, bottom line. And I always want to know what status my gear is in. So even in my, my inventory, I'll say like, okay, um, I've used that headlamp on, you know, four trips. Well, maybe on the fifth trip, I'm going to change out the batteries. Or that pistol red dot, the pistol red dot has been running for, two and a half years, but, and it's got a five-year battery life. Those batteries are pretty damn cheap. I will change out those batteries at three years. You know, like people are so content saying like, well, it's working. Well, why don't you press check your gear? Make sure that you know that the batteries are fresh. Know that the chamber's loaded. Know that, you know, that knife is sharp. Know that that tent is free of any holes. Like it's okay to go through your gear. Because those little mistakes, those little oversights that you have when you're out in the field, they can turn into a nightmare for you. Like if you pack up a tarp from one camping trip and maybe one of the tie-out lines is frayed or, or damaged and you forget about it until the next time you're like, shit, I should have fixed this. I should have had this repaired. Now you can't tie it down when the wind is picking up and the rain is coming in. You know what I mean? So it's important to, to press check your gear.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's in, I think the you your level of detail orientation really needs to match the the level of that you're gonna take this right, you know. So we're base camping, but you're in the middle of nowhere, right? There's no Amazon or Walmart to bail you out if you forgot something, right? And so you kind of want to make sure you at least have all your stuff out there, but you can always kind of come back like, hey, my bow this thing got loose. I got to go get my Allen wrench. I didn't pack it. It's at camp. But if you're going to go maybe more so on the side where you take it, where like, Hey, I'm going to go for five days. Now you, you're kind of committed. You're married to your gear. You know, at that point, <laughs> have it or not, you're going to have to make it work.
0: Yeah. And I've had a lot of people say to me over the years, well, it breaks, I'll just send it back. It's got a warranty. and warranty. I'm like, There's no such thing as a lifetime warranty or I'll just send it back when you're in the woods for an additional 72 hours and you need it now. So you need to always ask yourself, is the warranty more important than the reliability? Because I am willing to pay a little bit more. And granted, listen, I've been a magazine writer and an outdoors guy for years. I've gotten stuff for free, and I'll tell people when I get something for free, when I pay for something. Many times I pay for my own gear, and I'll say, I would rather pay for something that I know will work than kind of hope that something might work. But yet there are other people out there that are like, I'll just fix it when I get home. Well, what if you need that to get home? Yeah. (laughs) You know? So it, that's, that's one of those mindset things that drives me crazy. When I hear that, it, it just, it's like an ice pick in my ear or nails on the chalkboard. It's like, you're settling. Stop settling.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely are. What does like your average... I'm just curious about you specifically. What does your average outing look like or your average... Like recreational, like you're not working, right? You're not on a training mission. You're just doing this for fun. Are you doing like big, deep backcountry excursions? Are you doing maybe more three, four-day things? What What does the average trip look like for you?
0: Brother, I'd need to have multiple days off right now to be able to do anything like that. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of my, my stuff when I have free time, which is usually just like one or two days a week at most like I work five days a week many times six or seven so I don't get extended trips that are personal many times I'm very fortunate when I do a hunt um it's usually covered by the company so I did a a western hunt in Wyoming uh eastern Wyoming and that was covered by the company but when I do get a chance to go out on my own it's usually around the holidays and, and I still go hunting in my home state of Connecticut even though We've got some ridiculous laws and whatnot. I don't mind going out by myself to my old stomping grounds. And I will wake up at four o'clock in the morning to drive to the site at, and get there at five or five 30. The sun will come up at six thirty or seven. And in Connecticut, it's a lot of still hunting, but I will absolutely sit still in one spot and just sit and sit and sit. And I, it's so peaceful for me. Um, So my average day could be a trip like that, or it could be me grabbing a chest pack that is loaded up with my fishing gear and a backpack. And in that backpack, I've got all my basic, you know, 72 hour kit, like my, my canteen, a whoopie, a poncho, you know, things like that. And I'll go out and I'll go fishing in the mountains and then I'll come home that day, you know? So I don't mind doing stuff like that. Like I do a lot of very deliberate one day trips, I get so refreshed, so re-energized when I do that thing. Any chance that I get to do an overnight, I'm going to do an overnight. And if I visit my girlfriend, I'll find a way to go fishing down in Florida. If I, you know, do something for the company, I'll find a way to get out in the great outdoors. So even when I was out in Utah recently to teach, I flew out to Utah. <laughs> I, had to, <laughs> I had to teach Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm sorry, Friday, Saturday, and of course on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I flew out there on Wednesday, and I had the option of staying in a hotel or being up in the mountains at elevation. And I told them, I'm like, you guys know where you can find me. (laughs) And they're like, you're going to be up in the hills. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I be? This is the most amazing country to go camping in. So my typical trip is very, very deliberate. Um, When I go, I go with, with purpose. And whether that's to go fishing or hunting or, or, to go up into you know the property that we use for field craft to go shooting or, or whatever it may be. There's always purpose. And I always get it done and I always feel so accomplished at the end. Um, and of course there's downtime. I do enjoy a good cigar every once in a while. So uh, that's usually involved in my, in, in my one day trips too.
1: Yeah. Perfect. You gotta have those, you gotta have those little, I don't know if they're they're not quite creature comforts, but those little things that just put the cherry on top, you know? Dude, I'll call it what it is. It's
0: a weakness. I love a good cigar. It's a weakness.
1: Yeah. Well, unless you're with me, then that'd be a strength, because I probably wouldn't be able to smoke a good cigar. <laughs> so awesome. Well, we're touching up on just over an hour. Obviously, I want to be respectful of your time and, and you're farther east than me, so it's later out there than it is here. Um but I wanted to give you an opportunity, Kevin, to share with the listeners where they can find you and where they can find your book if they're interested in learning 101 different skills they could use to survive in the woods. Yeah, of course. So people can find me at fieldcraftsurvival.com. Uh, that's the
0: company website. My you know, place of business is in North Carolina, so I run the training division here in Aberdeen and we do bushcraft survival training, land navigation training, medical training, uh, shotgun training. Uh, our tactical training director, Casey, he runs all of the pistol and rifle courses out of Maxman. So we have a lot of training that we do here in North Carolina. We will get you ready for the field. Um, people can message me on Instagram at Estella Wild Ed. They can email me if they want, estella at foodcraftsurvival.com. Um, and you can find my book at Barnes and Noble. You can find my book at books a million on Amazon. You can buy it on, on Fieldcraft. People always say, well, where's the best place to, you know, give you the most from the sale. And it's like, I get the same commission that I've been getting for four years off that book, no matter where you buy it. So as long as you can find it for a good cheap price, I'm happy. And if you want to do something that's really cool, something I've been encouraging everyone to do, please buy a copy of it. If you haven't already and donate it to your local library for distribution and specify that so they don't sell it. Um, Just because I want to encourage people to get into the great outdoors, and not everyone's going to have 20 bucks to buy a book, and maybe there'll be a kid today like there was when I was young and I was that kid going to the library, checking out books, getting inspired by outdoor writers, and maybe by donating a, a book to your library, a book that I wrote, you'll inspire our kids to be the next generation of outdoor women.
1: Wouldn't that be cool if you could just look down wherever you're looking up from in a hundred years and there's some person on a podcast that says, I got into it because I read this book at my local library.
0: That would be really cool.
1: That would be so cool. That'd be amazing. That's, that's, I guess why we do it. That's why you do it anyway. You're, you're the educator, right? That's the, that's the dream. Yeah. Lifelong. Never end. Ah, There you go. Well, thank you for being here, Kevin. And thank you for listening, folks.